Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Jesus, I have my doubts. Are we allowed to say that? Are we allowed to say that in church? Are we allowed to say that on a Sunday morning in church? We're going to be in our our series, I'm Not Fine, over the next five or six weeks, exploring some of the things that plague all of us, but that so often go unspoken among us, things like doubt. I want to read, as I begin, a, a journal entry from a follower of Jesus several years ago who is struggling to reconcile the things going on in his life, struggling with faith questions, and it says this, God, I have been living as though you don't exist. I guess the only explanation is that I have lost faith. For years I've been trying to reconcile the promises of Scripture with my own experience, which seems to contradict. It makes no difference whether or not I pray for something, you will do whatever you would do anyway. Wicked people thrive while your people are left to flounder. Through pure chance, some achieve success or through natural ability, but there's no evidence in any of it of any kind of supernatural intervention. It feels dishonest to continue believing with so little reason. If you ask the question, how did I get my hands on somebody's personal journal entry, it's because I located it in the bottom drawer of my nightstand where several like it are located. Most written between 2005 and 2008 when I was going through a dark season, a desperate season, and I was plagued by real doubts. Now there are some reasons why I was, I think, going through that and why I tend to struggle with doubts in general. Uh, One is that I'm skeptical by nature. Some of you may be the same. If you've ever told me something that's sensational, I don't seem like I'm quite buying it, it's because I don't. I'm the wrong guy to try to sell something to. In fact, I remember distinctly when I was a young child and my mom was taking us kids through a family devotional time and she read something that Jesus said and I blurted out, Jesus lied. And it got very quiet like it just did here. And of course, Jesus didn't lie, but my skeptical nine-year-old heart just went, that doesn't compute, that doesn't make sense. Not only am I skeptical by nature, but I went through a season in high school of praying fervently and faithfully and believing that God would heal my mom of cancer and the healing never came. And then I found myself, having graduated from college, experiencing several years of loneliness and restlessness and wondering, is this really what my life is going to be? I found myself asking that fundamental question, is God real? Is there an afterlife? Or can I even be a Christian if these things are true? Now I want you to know that for me, admitting my struggles with doubt as a pastor, that is more difficult for me than even acknowledging past sins and failures. I I try to keep it pretty open and honest uh, from here, and I've talked about some of those things. The truth is, talking about doubt is harder, and and I have a hunch that I know why. See, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, what we have is inherently a faith system. We, We call ourselves things like people of faith. 
We say that people are saved based on believing certain things to be true. So what does it mean if it feels like my faith is faltering or if I'm losing faith altogether? Many of you were here last Sunday as we celebrated Easter Sunday where we remember the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And it's the high note of the Christian calendar, the the high point of our faith. It's the most fundamental thing we believe to be true and yet... It took all of a few days for Jesus' closest followers to question, can this really have happened? John chapter 20, verses 24 and 25 tell us that a man named Thomas was uh, was not rather with the disciples when Jesus first appeared, and here's what happened. Now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came, and so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. In other words, Jesus, I have my doubts. Today what we're going to spend the next 15 or 20 minutes doing is talking about something that I'm going to call the truth about doubt. I want to give you three truths that I believe are, are, are rooted in scripture and things we can hang on in those seasons where we struggle to reconcile our faith. The first is this, doubts do not disqualify. Now think about this with me for a second. None of you in the room expect to leave here after church on Sunday and go from Monday through next Sunday being perfectly holy, right? None of you think you're gonna have a perfect record when it comes to being loving and kind to your children, your spouse, or your roommates. You build in some margin, not make an excuse, but recognizing that we're humans and go, I'm not gonna be perfect. Why then do we expect perfect faith? Why is it so hard to say that there are gaps, there are things I struggle to believe, there are things that I have a hard time saying out loud because I'm afraid other people will think I've lost my way. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus encountered a man who was struggling in his faith. He had a boy who was experiencing violent seizures and nothing that they were doing could seem to heal the boy and so he brings him to Jesus. Mark 9 verse 24, Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening? And the man said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now that's remarkable. It's remarkable to me that in the same breath, this father of this boy with seizures said, Lord, I do believe, and yet I also recognize within me there is unbelief at the same time. In other words, he's affirming, Jesus, my faith is in you. That's where it is, but the degree is not what it ought to be. And Jesus seems okay with that. Because the question is not how much faith do you have. The question is, in whom is your faith? The reality is, if you take a good seed and you put it on the carpet, it's not going to do anything. But when you put it in the right soil, it produces and it grows. And Jesus is saying, listen, you don't need a lot of faith. You just need faith to be in the right person. And here this father had come to the right person. He had come to Jesus. This is what Jesus is dealing with with the disciples when they were struggling with faith questions in Luke chapter 17 Verses five and six. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. 
And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. In other words, Jesus is saying, guys, you don't need increased faith. The problem here is you don't have any faith. It's not increase it. It's even a small seed of faith would produce. The question is not how much you have. The question is, do you have it? And is it in the right thing or in the right person, which is Jesus? Doubts don't disqualify. Secondly, faith is simple. Now notice I didn't say faith is easy. I said faith is simple. I believe that faith is simply this statement. Faith is believing that Jesus is who he says he is. That's why Jesus could say about children that were coming to him, he says, anyone who doesn't have their kind of faith will never get beyond the kingdom's gates. Faith is believing Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the son of God, that he's the savior of the world, that he's the king and the Lord of our lives. Now let me clarify something that I'm not going to do in the little time that we have today in this message. I'm not going to deal with intellectual doubts about the person of Jesus. Right? There's two basic reasons. One, we simply don't have time. We would be here till Thursday if we tried to have all of that conversation. Now I'm going to give you some resources because you can have intellectual confidence. You don't have to check your brain at the door. You can believe that God spoke the world into existence, that a man named Jesus walked out of his own grave. But we don't have the time to cover all of that. And here's the second reason. Most of you in the room, not all, but most of you in the room, at some level, you already believe. Despite what the world says is crazy, you do believe that God spoke the world into existence. You do believe that Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised to life. If you still struggle, I want to give you some resources. Number one, the case for faith or also the case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Both great books that deal with intellectual doubts. Uh, another one is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Another is Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. If you're wrestling on Chris, for me, it's, it's intellectual. I have a hard time reckoning these facts and these things. Then I would encourage you to pick up one of those books. What I want to do today is deal with what I'm going to call circumstantial doubt. Questions like, if God is good, how can he allow this injustice in my life? If God answers prayer, why hasn't the healing come? If God really cares about me, why do I feel so alone? One of the great New Testament Bible characters in all of the pages of Scripture is a man named John the Baptist. John the Baptist was kind of the opening act for Jesus' main event. He was a cousin of Jesus who had been sent to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry and his message. But by the time we catch up with John here in Matthew chapter 11, he's not on the streets proclaiming repentance. He's not in the Jordan River baptizing. Where John is is in a prison awaiting execution. John had made the mistake of speaking truth to power. He told a powerful ruler named Herod that what you're doing is sin and you need to cut it out. And so Herod had him placed in prison. And so in Matthew chapter 11, we see what John does. Matthew 11 verses 2 and 3, it says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his own disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for someone else? What in the world? <laughs> Now, it's one thing for, for a, a random dad who's having a son who's going through seizures to say, Jesus, my faith is struggling. 
I can even make allowances for a, a disciple shortly after the resurrection of Jesus when this is all brand new going, man, I'm not sure I can reconcile all this. But not John the Baptist. I mean, think about this. This is the man who was the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and the first to proclaim him to the world. The one who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. I mean, talk about those credentials. This is the one who'd been predicted by prophets, the one entrusted with the messianic message. And he comes to Jesus with the question, are you the one who was to come or is there someone else? Oh, what a refreshingly honest question that is. <laughs> Never mind the fact that John had once been bold and unflinching in his faith in Jesus. For, forget the fact that his entire life was spent paving the way for him. Despite the prominent place that John holds in the story of Jesus, there's no getting around what the question implies. Jesus had failed John's expectations. And John is left going, Jesus, I went all in for you. Is it really somewhere else? or in someone else? Let me ask you this, have you ever been there? Maybe some of you are there right now. You've tried Jesus, you've done the church thing, you, you've tried to live by faith and yet you find yourselves in circumstances where it feels like you're in a prison wall where prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and you're going, Jesus, I don't know if I can believe anymore. Is there something else out there for me? Here's the third truth, and I'm going to stay here for a little while. Jesus is gracious. You need to know this morning that the source of our salvation, the source of your salvation, is not your faith. Let me clarify that. You go, but I thought faith saves you. The source of your salvation is not actually your faith. The source of your salvation is the grace of God demonstrated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and followed by the leading of the Holy Spirit to him. And in that process, God gives you faith to believe and you are saved. The source isn't your faith. The source is the grace of God. This is what Paul is explaining in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. In the late 90s, a band called Cademan's Call wrote a lyric that goes something like this. My faith is like shifting sand changed by every wave. My faith is like shifting sand, so I stand on grace. So in other words, it's not faith producing salvation, but it's God's grace to us producing faith, which together save us and put us into right relationship with God. Now, some of you would shout that from the rooftops, go yes and amen, but unfortunately in my experience, some of the people that proclaim God's theological grace the most boldly demonstrate it the most weakly. And I don't mean like every week, I mean like in weakness, <laughs> I want you to know Jesus isn't just gracious theologically. Jesus is the embodiment of graciousness to you. He's kind. He's tender. He's gentle. He's patient. That's why Romans 2 tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Jesus embodies grace to us, including when we doubt. And it's why Jesus could show up to Thomas in the middle of all of his doubts and not say, Thomas, you idiot. But say, Thomas, put your hands here. 
If it's evidence you need, I'll give it to you. This is, this is the nail marks. This is the wounds in my side. And Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Jesus was gracious with Thomas's doubts. Jesus was gracious with the doubts of this father who came with his boy in the middle of seizures. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't say, you've gotten it wrong. You need greater faith. Come back in a couple weeks when you've worked on it and see if you have enough faith. Jesus simply heals the boy because he's gracious and he's compassionate. And Jesus is incredibly gracious with this question that John brings. Are you truly the Messiah? Look at how he responds in Matthew 11 verses 7 through 11. John's disciples are returning and it says, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Tell me, what what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Look, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and even more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare the way before you. Verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. The thing that's so astonishing to me in this and the thing that just shouts of the graciousness and kindness of Jesus is that this affirmation of John's character and his calling and his ministry does not come while John is scaling the heights of faith. It doesn't come when he's in the Jordan River baptizing. It doesn't come when he's proclaiming the message of repentance. It comes when John is alone, wasting away in a prison cell, surrounded by doubts. And Jesus says, it doesn't get any greater than this. Maybe some of you grew up thinking that you had to say just the right words or have all the right answers in order to be saved. And you've been plagued since childhood with going, was I really saved? Did I I get the formula right? Did I say the words in the right order? Did I walk the aisle? Did Did I do that the right way? Or maybe some of you were once a leader in your youth group or college ministry or you were a leader in some other church in some other place, but now it's all you can do to get out of bed and get to church in the morning. Maybe you came to faith in just the last few years or even the last few months as some of you have and already you're seeing that faith that was so on fire in the beginning starting to cool off and it's creating doubts in your mind. Or maybe you show up today and life has just simply kicked you in the teeth and you're left reeling saying, Jesus, I have my doubts. Can I tell you what 2005 through 2008 those years did for me? I wouldn't wish them on somebody else. I wouldn't want to go back to them myself, but they were God's gift to me because here's what 2005 to 2008 taught me. I am not holding on to Jesus. He is holding on to me. And if I'm holding on to him, it's only evidence that he he has me. I am not the one that my salvation depends on. It is actually in him. And there is freedom in that. When you walk through the doubts, when you walk through the discouragement, the despair, when you struggle, when you're trying to reconcile, when you're in a season of of being overcome by temptation and crying out for deliverance, you didn't save yourself. God in his mercy and his graciousness saved you through Christ. He's the one holding on to you. So how did John respond to this affirmation of Jesus. This basically Jesus saying, yes, I am the Messiah. He says to John's disciples, look, the the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the, the good news is being preached to the poor. In other words, tell John, I am who I said I was. So how did John respond? Well, we don't know. And if you can find it, let me know. 
Because we never again see John in the scriptures. I told you I read, or I read something to you that I wrote uh, several years ago. Let me read something that I wrote to you more recently. And it's about John and his response to Jesus in Matthew 11. We have no idea how John received the message that Jesus' followers brought back. The next time we encounter him in the New Testament, John uh, is being taken to be buried. The details of his death are bizarre and gruesome and radically unjust. You can read them for yourself if you'd like. For some reason, none of the gospel writers thought it was necessary for you to know what Jesus' assurance meant to John, but it is not hard to imagine. The one who had leaped in the womb the first time he was near Jesus. The one who had courageously and faithfully pointed people to him, even when it meant losing followers of his own. The one who, even in the face of stubborn doubts and certain death, couldn't stop thinking about Jesus. I picture a satisfied smile coming over his face. Troubling restlessness gives way to calm reassurance. He had gotten it right. Jesus was who he said he was. And for John, that was all that mattered. Let me ask you this question. Is it all that matters to you? If Jesus doesn't swoop in and save the day in your uh, struggle, in your despair, if the marriage you're pouring everything into fails, if your season of singleness goes on not more months but years, if the prodigal child that you prayed for and did your best to raise in faith has walked away and there's no sign of him or her coming back, can you rest in the calm assurance Jesus is who he says he is? He's our King of kings, our Lord of lords. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, the lion who is returning for us, the one who holds us in our hands and by his breath sustains the universe. Jesus is who Jesus says he is. We can rest in the assurance of that. Nearly 200 years ago, a man named Horatio Spafford, a wealthy Christian living near Chicago, sent his family, his wife and four young daughters across the sea to England. And about at the midway point of that journey, the boat began rocked by, getting rocked by waves and winds and storm and the ship was sunk. His wife, Anna, survived miraculously. All four young daughters were drowned in the sea. As soon as Horatio Spafford could, he got on a ship himself and sailed the same journey to be reconciled to his wife. And at one point, somebody gently nudged him and said, Mr. Spafford, we're being told that this is the place the ship went down. This is the place where your daughters lost their lives. And Horatio Spafford arrived in England, was reconciled to his wife, and then grabbed a pen and a pencil and wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And from the depths of the despair of this one man came a hymn of praise that has buffeted and held up and supported the church for nearly 200 years. Can I ask you this question as we close? If your circumstances aren't going to change and you've got nothing else to say, can you say it is well with my soul? Can you come and leave your doubts, your discouragement, your despair, your loneliness, whatever it might be, can you give that to Jesus and let him be enough? We're going to sing a song in just a moment. It's basically a modern day version of the song, It Is Well. 
And I wanna invite you, we've got some uh, tissue on the stage up here. If you need to come and just get on your knees, if you need to come and just rest your hands on that, if you need to come and just worship the Lord or even where you're seated to do that, I wanna invite you to do so as we sing the words to this song. I'm gonna pray and then team lead us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your graciousness to us, God. And Lord, we pray that even in this moment as we have heard from your word and we've seen the example of people who like us struggled, struggled to reconcile the issues in their life, struggled to reconcile faith and doubt, Lord, would you meet us here? And God, if there's anyone that needs to really experience and encounter you in a special way, would you be gracious and gentle to meet them in this place, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.